Hello, I'm Sam Clement, and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. This is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime and is entirely curated by guests on this podcast. Today, we're joined by film critic, broadcaster, and host of the Girls on Film podcast, Anna Smith. Hello. Thank you for joining us today, Anna, during this lockdown. Oh, thank you for having me. I've been keen to come on this for a while, so it's a real pleasure. You know, when you're making a podcast, you're always sort of looking at, you know, who else is out there? And I've been meaning to talk to all of the UK film pods. It's all good. And I must say, I'm looking forward to being interviewed rather than interviewing, because this is a a table turn. So this is quite exciting for me. Uh, Although it's, you know, absolutely nerve-wracking for me, because you are a very experienced podcaster, Q&A host, radio person. Um, And you've been on the telly. You've been on the actual telly. Yes, I do quite a lot of telly. BBC and Sky News, uh, Newsnight, um, Sky Cinema for the Oscars. So yeah, I get around. I do get around and I, I love it. I love the variety of a freelance career where you can, I've sort of moved from print more into broadcasting as time's gone on, which has been like a dream combination of all the things I wanted to do when I was little, basically. So it's great. Were you always working in film or were you writing about other things when you started? Yeah, um, after my postgrad in journalism, I ended up in dance music magazines, kind of rave culture. And then I was in women's magazines. And it was while I was at women's magazines, I started writing about film. And I suddenly realised that's what I wanted to do. Like the penny dropped. I thought, oh my gosh, this is a dream, but can I do it freelance? But when I got made redundant, with the magazine folded. It was the best opportunity to try that out. And I haven't looked back. So that was 20 years ago. And I sort of started out writing for Sight and Sound and Time Out and um, Elle magazine and just broadening it from there. So it's a dream job. What can I say? How did you make the leap from dance mag to film mag? It's quite a contrast. Because I was at a women's magazine on staff for several years after editing a dance music magazine, which again was a bit of a leap, but they took a they took a risk on me and they thought I might bring some, you know, street to, to the table. I think I'd fall, the thing is that I'd fallen into music by accident and in, much as I liked music and going out clubbing, I don't think it was what I was destined to write about. But film is so much about people and the human condition and analysis and as an English graduate as well that appeals and I just feel that being able to write about such a breadth of topics as a film critic is a real treat it's a real gift Girls on Film podcast is reasonably new I guess after being a writer and a broadcaster for a while when did you decide okay I want to do my own thing I want to have my own podcast well funny enough it's Girls on Film was an idea I had almost 20 years ago for a tv show like all women talking about film because I just didn't think you saw enough of it in broadcasting in general and we still don't but about a year and a half two years ago when the whole me too times up erupted um, i spoke to my um, agent and producer heather archibald and she said let's make it a podcast which i thought was a great idea it works really well as a format to communicate with people whether they're commuting or pottering around at home as you well know and we've just had such an amazing response i mean the idea was to shine a light on female film critics and female filmmakers but also have male guests if they made a fantastic film about a woman as bo burnham did with eighth grade he came on the pod and what's been incredibly encouraging is the response from talent like Kerry Mulligan, Linda Hamilton, Maxine Peake, who've all readily come on the pod and shared their experiences and their enthusiasm, which has just been so fantastic. With the podcast, how have you 
How have you found it over the years? How's it sort of changed since you started? We've been going since October 2018 and I think we've sort of developed as we've gone along, you learn that certain things work really well for a certain amount of time and then the listeners are looking for something fresh. So at the beginning we had more of a focus on a a weekly section called the Bechdel Test Challenge where you would obviously, I'm I'm sure many of your listeners know what the Bechdel Test is. We just use that as a springboard, um, albeit a flawed one, to talk about films and to show that a lot of great films actually don't pass, but it's a way of giving a feminist take on things in an accessible way very quickly. And I think we've probably ended up having more actors and filmmakers on than I anticipated, partly because there's demand and partly because they just have been so readily keen to come on, which has been amazing. Um, And we actually did a lot more live shows than we expected. We've had such an incredible offers and response like you. We did the London Podcast Festival and we've done Cannes and Film Festival, Rostown Film Festival, Glasgow, Edinburgh, Manchester. So yeah, I was not expecting the response from people to the live podcast environment. It's really special. So you have a job where you must watch hundreds of films every year. Yes. As a film critic who's freelance, it behooves me to watch as much as is humanly possible. So certainly up to the last few years, up to when I started the podcast, I was watching almost everything that came out. Now I am being particularly diligent about watching things that are female-centred. I mean, I will see action films, but I won't see every single thing that Nicolas Cage does, for example. I'm also chair of the London Film Critics Circle, so I'm very aware of all the releases and and what's coming out and trying to manage screenings, you know, for some of our members. But yeah, what a great job. If the the worst part of your job is watching a terrible film, then that's not so bad, is it? (laughs) Not at all. It's, uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's a bit of a dream being able to, you know, watch watch as many films as we get to watch. Um, But a lot of these films, I guess, are, are sort of new releases because you need to stay, you know, in the conversation and see what's coming up. Do you get a chance to, like we do on this show, sort of, you know, dip back into someone's back catalogue very often? Actually, at the moment, this is the time that I'm having a chance to do that. Um, Although my husband, Ben, and I did try to instigate a sort of classic movie Sundays with that in mind about, you know, a year or so ago, which we tried to do. But the thing with my job is that there's always a screener of something that I I need to see, which is probably, you know, very attractive to us both. So I've been trying to sneak probably more of them in on Classic Movie Sunday than I should have. Um, but, but the good thing about being in lockdown now is that we're going through all the old DVDs on the shelf and um, reawakening our interest in lots of classics. So it's brilliant. Every day is Classic Movie Sunday at the moment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> when you're going through the, the DVD shelf on Classic Movie Sundays, does a runtime ever come into your decision making? It certainly would do because obviously, like everyone, you know, you have, a, you have your dinner at a certain time, you have a glass of wine, you think, okay, I want to be in bed by midnight or whatever it is, and you work back from there. So you definitely, and often because it's a quite a spontaneous decision or dinner's taken longer than planned, then uh, a shorter running time can be very attractive. So how did you choose the film that we're going to talk about today? Well, it didn't spring to mind immediately because actually I wasn't instinctively aware that it was under 90 minutes because it packs a lot in. But when I did a bit of digging around, because it's not one of the most obvious ones when you Google it, and certainly obviously you've covered some great ones already in the podcast. So when I had a little bit of a dig around, I suddenly saw it and it was a total winner for me um, because it's a film that I saw probably in my late teens and have seen quite a few times since then and saw it last a few years ago and I was really keen to see it again for this. And what film did you choose for us, Anna? I chose Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. 
When Ivan jilts longtime lover, actress Pepper, she plans her suicide, lacing her gazpacho soup with barbiturates. She is, however, saved by her best friend, Candea, a fugitive from the law. Further adding to the chaos, Ivan's son and his fiancée, Marissa, turn up at the apartment. Bored with the situation, Marissa inadvertently ingests the gazpacho as she blissfully snoozes. Her fiancé inaugurates an affair with Carmen's fugitive friend. Pedro Almodovar directs this fast-moving, surreal farce of obsessive love, garnering him an Academy Award nomination. They could go on, couldn't they? It is a really convoluted, in the best possible way, kind of film. I'd actually pick them up on a few things with that summary because I'm not sure it's entirely clear whether she intends suicide or not. And I think Affair might be pushing it. But I think that gives a sense of the way this film is a rolling farce, which is one of the reasons I love it so much. Yeah, it's got this great energy uh, behind it. And I, I was surprised by, you know, this is a dark comedy and it was quite refreshing to see something like that. Definitely. I think when I saw it, I don't think I'd ever seen anything like it before. It was probably the first film I'd seen uh, made by Pedro Almodóvar. And I was studying Spanish till I was about 1920. I hadn't yet been to Spain. So I was becoming quite obsessed with Spain as a concept and the idea of going there and, I mean, not not necessarily thinking it was going to be all like an Almodovar film, which would have been amazing, um, or scary, I don't know, a bit of both. Um, but it, it added to my sense of fascination with Spanish culture and modernity and flamboyance and drama and all the things that he brings out in his filmmaking. Um, so I, I remember seeing it and, and just being absolutely blown away and then, of course, looking at the rest of his work um, as it evolved and following his career and being lucky enough to meet him last year was amazing at the Critics Circle Film Awards, but I digress. It's it's a it's a very special film to me. It was released in 1988, and Amodovar at this point had been working for, I think, since 1980. Uh, so he's already got a, a good body of work behind him, but this is his kind of breakout film. This gets him noticed by the Academy. This is the highest grossing film in Spain, Spanish language film in Spain of all time when it's released. And as you say, you know, huge in America as well. It really traveled this film and it was something that it was well marketed, but it was also appealed to people across different countries. And I think painted a very amusing picture of Spain, but also followed a lot of the classic rules of fast, uh, which, can, which can travel, you know, across borders. Uh, you know, the, the idea of coincidence being absolutely huge, the way that people's problems clash into each other and evolve and coincide more and more and more. And the way that he does this a lot, which I love, each incidental character has a huge personality. I mean, no, no extra in this film or no one-liner is is forgettable they all have something to give on from a comedic perspective and they're all really well cast as well so you know from the taxi driver to the receptionist they all have terrific one-liners which just um, bowl me over so yeah you can see why it was so successful because it is it is very accessible but it's still got I, what, what i love about it it still has a very very naughty streak and um an irreverent streak in it and it and it does break some rules not just of cinema even though it pays tribute to a lot of classic cinema but it also breaks rules about traditional codes of conduct when it comes to gender and so on which of course is a lot of what he and the movement he was part of you know did in the main back then and, and still to a lesser extent does this day because there's less of a need to it i think a lot of that is 
brought to the screen through the character of Pepper, our lead. Like, she's this amazing, irreverent, is really sort of just looking after her, out for herself, but she does it in such a way where she brings this huge group of people along for the ride. I thought she was a breath of fresh air. I loved it. I agree. And isn't that fantastic? Because on Girls on Film, we're still talking about the scarcity of this kind of female character who is very engaging, very charismatic, but she's very self-serving. She's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. She's complex. She's um, flawed. She she makes terrible decisions. She nearly completely ignores her friend's attempted suicide. Far from the stereotype of the of the sort of cosy girlfriend, she's saying, "Look, I'm not interested in your dramas today. I've got enough dramas of my own. Go away." And and the consequences of that are nearly very very severe. But I think Kamal Mara is just amazing as Pepper in this film, and um, she's also you know a broadcast. TV person, which, you know, watching that back now, I found particularly interesting as someone that does appear on TV, actually watching behind the scenes jokes were very, very funny. It feels like Almodovar does this uh, a little bit, you know, he looks back on his own experiences and in this film, you know, you're seeing people doing the looping of dialogue in a in a show and he sort of brings those cinematic uh, techniques into into his work. And I guess he's, you know, maybe he's just drawing from his own experiences, thinking of people he's worked with along the way. Yes, he's always been very self-referential, obviously, as we've seen by his most recent film in particular. But it's the old write, write about what you know thing, but it, 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 it does have um, a very meta feel at times. It doesn't exactly break the fourth wall, but it, there's definitely a feeling of a huge awareness of the film industry and films within a film which we see a great deal in his work crops up here to a certain extent because you see the TV commercials that Pepper and Ivan, her lover, her, or her ex-lover, have filmed, and they do a hilarious one about condoms. You know, so everything everything has a sexual element in this film. But there's also the one of the opening sequences is of a commercial that Ivan has has filmed where he's a terribly suave man who's who's chatting up a series of women with terrible cultural stereotypes attached to each one, and it's very knowing and very funny, and I think sets the scene for that mockery of the man who is nowhere good enough for Pepper's affections. ¿Le molesta el mambo? No, no. Es que tengo de todo, ¿eh? Música heavy, rock, soul, cumbias, tengo sevillanas, eh, salsa, tecnopop, jotas, lo que quiera. Si quiere le quito el mambo. El mambo me encanta. Es que el mambo es lo que mejor va a este tipo de decoración, ¿eh? Amodovar is one of the first directors where I I sort of started to notice that directors often work, you know, he some directors like to work with the same actors again and again. And Amodovar's filmography is fascinating to go through and seeing his relationships with different members of his cast. And I think this film's quite interesting in that it's his last film with Carmen Mara for a while, but um, you know one of his great early films of Antonio Banderas, is he, who he works with a lot in the '90s and again more recently. Were you aware of you know his his relationships with these these actors when you came to the film? Not when I came to it, but obviously subsequently became much more aware of Antonio Banderas the more I, I watched of his work, and then as Banderas became very famous. But it's it, every time I watch this, I always get a bit of a start when I see him looking so young and naive um, in this in this film. He's he's very fun. He plays Carlos, who's who's the son of Ivan Pepper's lover, um, who comes into his own in this fast that evolves in Pepper's apartment. Um, and again, he's he's an interestingly complex character. He's not necessarily good or bad. He seems sweet, but then he's unfaithful, like his father. 
but then he's kind and I love the fact that nobody's judged they just have a com you know contradictions of personality constantly uh, but another one to look out for in, in this film of course is Rossi de Palma who plays Marisa his um, fiance who goes on her own little journey of sexual discovery of a sort in this film and I think um, this is her first Almodovar film and he found her in a cafe in Madrid and then of course went on to cast her in so many of his other films like Tommy Up, Tommy Down and Kika she has the most distinctive look and I think she if I think actually probably in the early days a lot of people when they thought of Almodovar would just summon up an image of her because she just mm. has that incredibly unusual nose and, the, and these really striking eyes and it's almost kind of surreal way about her she's, she's she's incredibly dramatic looking and um she can look so disapproving um she can summon a variety of very very amusing looks so i think she was a real find and they're such a great match it also says something about uh, an actress performance when their character spends a lot of the film sleeping, yet they still have this huge impact because they're moving her around. She's dreaming, of course, and she, you know, a lot of characters interact with her, um, asking why she's asleep uh, there. But um, yeah, I think she's she's incredible in this movie. I didn't realise that this was the first sort of screen work she'd done. I love the fact that at the end, actually, she really is a pivotal character because I think we're allowed to do spoilers here. She, you know, she and Peppa have a moment at the end of the film, which is really the film's only moment of quiet. And it's, it's about two women bonding and a woman who's chosen to reject um, her lover in order to, well, not in order to, but she ends up spending time with another woman who she previously didn't particularly like. But just the few words they exchange at the end, I think, are so revealing, N not only because it's two women laughing off everything that's happened and sort of having a lovely bonding moment uh, over sex, but also the cultural revelations that come that, A, Pepper thought, when Marisa says, oh, I think I just lost my virginity in my sleep, Pepper immediately thinks she's been assaulted by the policeman, which thank God she hasn't been, or the telephone repairman. But two, that being an engaged virgin was a possibility <laughs> in the 19... Late 80s, because I think now that that sort of character, a lot of young people would say, "What? How could he be that old and still be a virgin?" This was Catholic Spain in the late 80s, you know. So I think, well, that was watching it back was really culturally interesting, and also the, another thought that by having a sexual experience in her sleep in her dream, that could almost translate to something real, and there was no need for a man at all. That's interesting. It's such a nice, as you say, a nice moment of quiet at the end of this. And it, it's actually like genuine. It's Pepper being really genuine to somebody. Uh, you know, it's sort of like a bit of a treat. You, know, you get to see through her armour a little bit. That's right. They're both broken down at the end. They're both much nicer and they chill out. And everything is literally exploded with a gunshot and, and other things. And it's calmed down. Yeah. There are so many characters in this film. I guess like any you know good farce, you know, going back to things like noises off and, and that sort of stuff. But um, in your right, everybody does leave. Uh, you know, I think they have a good screen presence and they leave an impact. Uh, aside from uh, maybe Pepper, who I'm getting a sense that you you very much like, do you have a favourite supporting character in this? Oh my gosh, they're all amazing. Um, I, I'll make it clear that I like I like Pepper and her performance, but I'm not sure I'd want to be her friend. <laughs> She's a great character. <laughs> um, but um, Julieta Serrano as Lucia is amazing. So Lucia is the ex-wife of Ivan. She is, I mean, she's she's a real comedy character who is out there, kind of monstrous, kind of um, unpredictable. Um, and she, in the way that we understand Nervous Breakdown, is probably the closest woman in the film 
to having had one. Um, although Ataque de Nervios is more like a panic attack, I think, and it's not necessarily a very good translation. But she is a woman who has, um, unfortunately, had serious mental health problems that required hospitalization and has been feigning recovery in order to get revenge at the man who broke her heart. So that in itself is a very interesting concept, um, possibly problematic, but I think she is absolutely brilliant in the way her hair and makeup is, is done and becomes more and more extreme. She seems to be wearing some kind of lampshade on her head that matches this dress. And then she arrives at the apartment and somehow she's changed really quickly. Like she goes through all these changes. And then um, her son, played by Antonio Banderas, sort of goes, Mum, you're freaking me out. And you realise it's because she sort of painted her eyelashes on, like with really thick eyeliner on her face and she looks thoroughly alarming. And then at the end, there's a, I think there's a, a little Wizard of Oz tribute tribute when she's on she, she she hitches a ride or rather at gunpoint um to the to the airport on a guy's motorbike and her hair's blowing in the wind just like the wicked witch um on, on the broomstick so there's some lovely lovely moments with her i thought i think also yeah through that character we get to you know we actually get outside the apartment in quite an exciting car chase which i did not expect the film to end in that way <laughs> and this is my kind of car chase because i gotta say a lot of car chases i just zone out i do not find them interesting or exciting but because of the characters in this um and because of the rolling comedy that they've already established this relationship with the taxi driver that's very funny and he keeps picking her up and he's really sweet and really emotional and then the fact, again, this is a quite a nice female bonding moment, that the guy's the guy whose motorbike has been effectively hijacked, his girlfriend jumps into the cab with Pepper and says, Right, let's follow these guys to the airport and see what's going on. So it's um it's yeah, it's it's just actually a wonderful character farce that it, it you know it, its strength relies on the people rather than fancy car moves, you know? Everybody is quite willing to go on with this. You know, if someone who bumps into Pepper in the street, they'll follow her for the ride. And the taxi driver who keeps picking her up, um, you know, he gets really, really involved. I love that, you know, Almodovar is not at all interested in small talk. And I like that he is interested in the fact um, and uses the fact that when people have a drama, as we've all experienced, they tend to cut to the chase. And they tend to bond with strangers much more quickly if something dramatic is happening or they're having a panic attack or you know, something dreadful is going on. So therefore, all the characters in this tend to cut straight to the chase and talk about their emotions very quickly. And it's, it's a great device. And it actually does seem convincing in some ways, even though it's clearly a ridiculous film. You sort of believe that these people would suddenly get out all this information because they're all in a high state of panic. It kind of works. Yeah, basically, you know, it shows what people are willing to do, you know, when they're in a panic, when there's an emergency. And the whole film is kind of at that tempo. <laughs> so things move very fast. It is. And it's sort of originally exploring the idea of a woman being in a panic because a guy isn't calling her back. But then it, it becomes much more about life and death, you know, about terrorism, for goodness sake, and about suicide, potentially, and about murder. What Tomate, pepino, pimiento, cebolla, una puntita de ajo, aceite, sal, vinagre, pan duro y agua. El secreto está en mezclarlo bien. A Iván le encanta cómo lo mezclo yo. When you think of this film, does one scene in particular spring to mind? Well, it's interesting to think about what stuck with you over the years when you watch it and you think you remember it and then you didn't at all. There's all these details you've forgotten. So I think the scene with the gazpacho, which is, has been cooked up by Pepper with loads of, of sleeping tablets, 
she says to give to Iran, but possibly to commit suicide herself. That is, as you refer to, accidentally kind of um, ingested by Marisa, um, and then later deliberately served to the policeman and um, to the telephone repairman just because he happens to be in the wrong place. And the way they all sort of fall asleep and slumber is a very theatrical concept. You can see that really working on the stage, and I know this has been on the stage as well. Uh, but then it's, again, a very convenient device um, to allow Peppa to carry on with her business. Uh, but she herself is, um, you, you know, deus ex machina. I mean, she is, she is creating that situation herself. She's the architect. She's almost the director of that. And that's the most sort of farcical the film gets when the the soup is the smoking gun and it's sitting in the kitchen and you know that it's laced with all these drugs and, and you're just wondering what's going to happen to it. And they keep reminding you with through Marissa, you know, drinking it, they remind you how potent it is. How Spanish is that? This gazpacho is the kind of the smoking gun. Yeah, soup. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right. It doesn't resort to flashback or voiceover or explanations. They just have a very artful reminder through Marissa's slumber of the existence of that in the fridge, yeah. So I watched the film, you know, last night, 2020, the film came out in 1988. This film looks so fresh. Like, I think this is, you really get uh, an insight into how forward-thinking Almodovar is in terms of his film production. It's the visuals, it's the set design, the costume, and also the soundtrack. Is that something that stuck with you? Yeah, we can't talk about Almodovar without talking about the visual side because his sense of colour is extraordinary. And I think it's partly because it's always been very Almodovar. It hasn't ju just been of its time. And of course, there are some 80s fashions here and um, there are certain things which are of their time. But there are other things which are, you know, the, the way his use of red, for example, and the way he would film or decorate an apartment with, with, the, with the aid of his crew, which have remained constant and all that be a bit refreshed throughout his, his film career. So I think that has helped keep it fresh because it's always been him rather than trying to be in like an apartment in 1988 but also he just like him and his crew just got the most incredible sense of style i mean i would wear that red top that she wears now <laughs> it's it just it just stands the test of time and yeah it does it just it does look really crisp doesn't it i mean i watched it on the on the dvd which ben gave me about at least a decade ago and it still looked fantastic i think it's like very very contemporary filmmaking and it's it's almost timeless you know like Obviously, it's set in a particular time, but he's done it in such a way where it hasn't dated at all, which is, is a classic mode of our trait, I think. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you could say that about almost all his work, and it'd be interesting to revisit the more recent ones in 10 years' time, because that will probably apply. He just captures humanity beautifully. What you were saying about the costumes, I think our mode of our... You know, he, he obviously is very passionate about how things look on screen, and he's manufacturing these sort of characters who feel the needs to change costumes you know halfway throughout the day or, or to simply go outside and collect a suitcase where we get to see that stunning red dress yes that's right and i think also in a slightly hitchcockian way he manufactures situations where paper has to get undressed you know in, in front of um antonio banderas's character carlos and 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 that creates a, a weird tension given that he's the son of her lover and, and there's also a running gag about a missing shoe. And, and there, there, there are lots of efforts to make the wardrobe as distinctive and entertaining and significant to the plot as possible. I think you're absolutely right. And, and again, you see that in a lot of his work. And uh, as someone that's interested in fashion, I think that's a, a major bonus. 
If this is someone's first Pedro Almodovar film, where would you recommend they go after this? That's a tough one, isn't it? Oh my gosh, I think I would I would go for some of the slightly earlier ones to get a sense of his incredibly colourful vibe in the early days. I mean, High Heels, nineteen ninety one. I think that's a good one. It, it's similarly crazy and energetic. I think he's got more serious, arguably, or, or, or fell into more serious territories as things went on or experimented with it. But I think I would start with the early ones um, and then maybe have a look at Talk to Her, Abre Cornelia in um, 2002. Uh, again, slightly more serious, but absolutely brilliant. Um, and one which I love, which I think brings together his sense of the macabre and is a bit more serious, but in a totally messed up and modified way, is The Skin I Live In from 2011. And that is the first film premiere I went to in Cannes. And just to be a few seats back from them all, watching that was an incredible experience because I, and I, I do think I was lucky with the film because I do think it's one of his best of that period. But you know what, you can't go far wrong with any other one. There's, there's not a bad one. There isn't a bad one. Well, there we have it. Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown is in the 90 Minutes or Less Film Festival. It's our first Spanish language film. It's our first Pedro Almodovar film. And I think he has made a few other under 90 minute films. So we could develop a wing of Almodovar in this festival. We're going to get this film on the big screen. Um, I can give you a cinema, but I'd love for you to bring something to the screening to maybe eventize it, Anna. What's, how should people best enjoy Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown on the big screen? Oh, well, I think... You wear red, that would be good. Get yourself in the mood. I would certainly put a, a red dress on that's quite figure-hugging. I think maybe some sangria at the beginning. And yeah, you want a great screen, which you can provide, thanks for that. Obviously, I'll fly my, my mate Pedro in for a Q&A. We'll do that, that would be good. And, um, and Antonio, because I've done one with him before as well. So get them along. And um, all have a good old chat and, and a party, but um, I would be careful about drinking the soup. That's all I'd say. So I'd love to hear them both talk about this film, especially, you know, now as their careers have moved on, you know, so much. Um, going back to something from 1988, uh, getting to reflect, that'd be amazing. We should record it as a podcast. Definitely. That'd be amazing. And Carmen. I mean, I don't know even what she's up to at the moment, but I would love to hear about it. On the, the release I've got, there is a really nice sort of documentary with some of the cast uh, talking about it. So, I mean, they, they've all got together to sort of do these talking heads for the film. So they must be very fond of it. Good. Yeah, I mean, I mean it's, it's been a huge part of all their careers, hasn't it? The DVD I've got has only got a slightly dubious intro on it. So um, I'll <laughs> check, out your, check out your more up-to-date one. Anna, do you think this film should or could be longer than 90 minutes? I think it's perfect as it is. I mean, I could have easily watched that scenario unfold for an extra 20 minutes, but I admire the precision and the restraint of making it under 90 minutes. Congratulations, El Molobal. Anna, where can people find out what you're up to on the internet and listen to the Girls on Film podcast? So you can follow me on Twitter at Anna Smith Journo and on Instagram at Anna Smith Film Critic. And from there, you can find out the Girls on Film uh, channels. So we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, and we are on Instagram. And um, we'd love to hear their feedback if they enjoy it. Or even if they don't, just tell me. <laughs> 
Oh, fantastic. And I would recommend following Anna on Twitter because the film recommendations are coming thick and fast and it's uh, great to see. Thank you. I'm doing, I decided to do daily film recommendations um, during lockdown and um, it's been really lovely to have a response from people because we're all in this together and we all need good things to watch and I'm in a position to help. So yeah, follow me. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the show on your podcatcher of choice and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As an independent podcast, it really helps. We're also available on 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The show is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. member of the Stripped Media Network.